Hello! Hi everyone! Thank you so much for joining us on the Lunarverse today. My name is Charles Liu. You are, of course, welcome to call me Chuck. Thank you so much for being here today, and I want to introduce first our wonderful co-host, Alan Liu. Alan, how you doing? Hey, doing good. All right, re read anything good lately? Any cool books, shows? Ah, I've been reading um, Ministry for the Future Ooh. Uh, by, I think, Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh -huh. um, it's about like climate change and stuff, but like from a sci-fi perspective, it's pretty Ooh. cool. And we are so glad to have with us as our special guest today, Dr. Alexandra Greenbaum. Alex, hello. Hello. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, please tell the audience uh, who you are, what you've been doing, where you've been, the, the kinds of stuff. Get us some orientation of the cool stuff that you have done and the cool place that you are now. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, so I, I am an astronomer. I got my PhD in astronomy and uh, did a postdoc. Um, and then I went to industry for a little bit, but I was really missing astronomy. So um, now I'm back. Uh, now, recently, I'm a staff scientist at the at IPAC at Caltech, uh, working on the Roman Space Telescope mission, cool. the, specifically the chronograph instrument on Roman. Fantastic. IPAC stands for what exactly? Infrared something? Infrared Processing uh, for Astronomy Center. Maybe I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> Alan, Alan, help us out on that. What does IPAC stand for? Uh, okay, I can I can double check okay. that. While, okay. while you do that, I, I just want to pick up on this coronography did you say you're working on the coronagraph at on the nancy grace roman telescope that's right so now nancy grace roman telescope has two instruments uh, primarily the wide field instrument and a techno the technology demonstration um the chronograph instrument which is going to pave the way for future space coronography to be able to you know take pictures of planets that are similar to those like in our solar system. Wonderful. So your expertise is in taking really, really clear pictures using telescopes. You could say that. <laughs> um, I would say is taking advantage of what we know about uh, about telescopes to, to look for uh, hidden information, to look for the really faint signals that usually get washed out. Yeah. All right. So yeah, the I was on the website. It says it stands for Infrared Processing and Analysis Center. I always get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> the All right. A, A always throws me. Yeah, because okay. A should always stand for astronomy, right? Why should right, it stand right. for anything else ever? Analysis? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Don't show my boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they they say they have grown beyond its inaugural name yeah. on the website. Yeah. So it's, it's more than just that. Okay. That's why it's hard to look up. It's, it's IPAC now. Yeah. <laughs> Let us start now with today's cosmically cool thing. And it's got to be the picture of Sagittarius A-star that has recently come out. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who uh, aren't in on the lingo, I apologize for you know, using technical terms. Sagittarius A-star, which is uh, often written S-G-R, capital A, asterisk, Okay. is the technical name of the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And the team at the Event Horizon Telescope has just recently put out an image of that black hole, which is totally amazing, but also a little bit hard to understand. 
even some of my colleagues in my department who are you know, incredibly talented and brilliant physicists, they're like, wait a second, that doesn't seem like what a black hole ought to look like. And it's not sort of, unless you know what you need to look at. But uh, Alex, since you are an expert, tell us when we look at that bright ring, right, followed by that dark circle in the middle, the black hole is not even either of those things. The black hole itself is actually inside the the dark ring, kind of hidden behind the photon capture radius, right? Right, right. So we're forgetting just the light that is is able to actually come and hit our telescope or telescopes, as it were. Um, this very very cool detection yeah. and image. Right. So so what is the deal with the telescopes? I mean, we know that the Event Horizon Telescope is actually a network, right? Of large numbers of telescopes all over the world to put together a picture together using a, a technology called interferometry. You were just mentioning that earlier. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so it, it's it's pretty pretty clever. Uh, you know, if you if you want to see really, really small details, like being able to see the light that's closest to the, the black hole there, you need a really, really big telescope. Uh, and, and in this case, you need a telescope that's basically the size of the Earth. Wow. And instead of trying to build a big dish that's that big, which would be impossible, you can yeah. actually correlate the signals from different telescopes all over the world together very precisely and put, put together an image uh, of, of what all those signals are measuring. But does that mean that actually this Event Horizon Telescope uses the Internet? To, to connect one another? Is it actually a, a worldwide telescope type thing? So I, I, I don't know the details of how they actually do the signal correlation, but I believe that they have really, really good clocks at each site um, and they measure that signal. And then they, I, I, I think they may just bring the signals together physically uh, and, and sync them up and then correlate them. Wow. Yeah, I think they like carry them around on hard drives yeah. or something. Whoa. Right, right. Uh, so, Certainly, historically, that's how, how it was done. I think it's still done that way. Yeah. So, so it's actually still like more precise to carry them around in a suitcase or something and, and then bring them together somewhere to process them rather than, say, try to use the Internet to, to sync them up. Maybe. I, like I said, I'm not 100 percent sure, but um, maybe the I can imagine that there's a lot of data. Right. Um, right. So so, you know, I have to think about the right way to. Uh, handle all that data and bring it together and get the timing perfect. Yeah. Anyway, in any case, it's a remarkable and tremendous technical uh, effort that that was made to make it happen. And I'm super psyched about it. All right. Let's go to a question. Alan, is there a question from somebody that we can give Alex uh, a crack at the answer for? Yeah, we do have another question. Uh, before that, I'm going to say I, I did look up the amount of data that the Invent Horizon Telescope produces. It's Ooh. around 64 gigabits every second. Wow. So enough to fill one of the uh, the highest capacity iPhones every two <laughs> minutes or so. <laughs> and uh, and one of the telescopes in the Event Horizon Telescope is at the South Pole where there isn't high-speed internet, so they just have to fly it in on hard drive. Wow. There you go. Okay. Yeah, we've got some questions. Um, the first question is, we were talking a little bit about um, telescopes and their construction and their operation. So this one is a question from Isaac, who asks, how does JWST differ from Hubble? That's a great question, I think. Um, Hubble is, has had such an impact on all of our lives, I think, no matter who you are and what you do. Um, but in, in many ways, uh, Hubble, Hubble is different kind of technology, right? Hubble is a single mirror, right, which makes certain things convenient. But 
making a mirror even bigger than Hubble would become very heavy and very expensive and potentially not be as good of a mirror. So for one, James Webb Space Telescope has a much bigger mirror, about three times the diameter. Um, and it, in order to have this mirror, it's actually made up of 18 different mirror segments that all align together to form that, the primary mirror. Um, the other, another way that it's different from Hubble is that uh, it's an infrared telescope, whereas Hubble is mostly in the visible. Oh. Um, and and huh. James Webb can look well into the infrared, into the mid-infrared, um, and it's giving us different information about a lot of the same things that Hubble has looked at, um, but enriching our understanding of, of the universe. Wow. When you say that something is sort of multi-segmented as a mirror like James Webb is, d- does it look kind of like a like an insect's eye or something like that? One of, the, one of those things, you know, they like they're able to look in multiple directions sort of? Yeah, well, I guess I guess you you could, but the idea is is to make it so that it acts like a single mirror. Oh. Um, it, it's very powerful if you can shape the surface so that it was like a continuous mirror. You could have it pointing in different directions, but then you wouldn't get that resolution, uh, just like we talked about how the Event Horizon Telescope takes advantage of, you know, the resolution of using the whole, you know, size of the Earth. Yeah. Um, by by forming the mirror that's bit, that's larger, it gives it better resolution. I see. Oh, very cool. So even though it's not round, single piece, it's as if it were a single piece. It's just really big. Wow. Yeah. That's a wow. Thank you. And then the infrared part, I wanted to ask you, uh, the sun, right? And light bulbs in our house and so forth, uh, the LED kind anyway, they emit primarily visible light radiation, the kind of stuff that the Hubble Space Telescope is primarily uh, able to sense best. So what are the kinds of things like around our world that emit infrared radiation that James Webb would be really good at detecting? Oh, yeah. I mean, around our world, you know, anything, if you've ever looked, you know, at a, at a heat sensing camera, you know, a thermal camera, you can see things are glowing in the infrared that are, that are hot, that are different temperature. And we can take advantage of that with JWST to look at things that are emitting more in the infrared that are a little bit cooler than, you know, like our sun. Um, this is everything from stars that are cooler than the sun to yeah. uh, some of the earliest you know, light from the universe um, and looking backwards in time. Uh, it's its very exciting. Oh, because the light's been stretched, right? Like it was it was visible light, but because of the expansion of the universe, it's all right. It's all stretched out to the to those colder and redder wavelengths. Ah, cool. So going from Hubble to James Webb Space Telescope is a generation. But now we're going from James Webb to the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope, which is what you're working on. So this is a great way to sort of launch into that point. Now, we should, of course, make sure that everyone knows that Nancy Grace Roman is a different person from Nancy Grace. So you've seen Nancy Grace maybe on TV doing news type stuff, right? But Nancy Grace Roman, who was this wonderful Nancy Grace Roman person, Alex? Uh, Nancy Grace Roman um, was a real pioneer of space astronomy. Um, she was really important in launching the space astronomy program at NASA and kind of the reason we have Hubble and James Webb and now Roman uh, telescope. Um, so she's very key character in all of that wow. and an astronomer. Yeah. How come we've never heard of her until now? Well, I'm glad that NASA put her name on a telescope. That's for sure. Wow. Yeah, that's 
that's a good question. Um, I, I know that her name has been on some some uh, uh, grants uh, associated, especially with instrumentation um, for for people who work on that kind of stuff. Uh. So I definitely heard of her there before. But you know, she was one of, I think, the only woman to hold like an executive position at NASA at the time. So you know, she wow. was really ahead ahead of her time in many ways. I think. Wonderful. She's got a Lego figurine too, apparently. Lego? Yeah. <laughs> so, so okay. So Nancy Grace Roman can ride with the Lego Batman in the next Lego movie, right? Uh, that would be a lot yeah, of Yeah, I hope That'd so. That would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so how does Nancy Grace Roman differ from the James Webb? Oh, yeah. So actually the, the Roman telescope is going to be similar size as Hubble. Oh. Um, but what, what makes it different than, than Hubble or James Webb is that it, it's a wide field, primarily a wide field instrument. So it's going to look at a huge portion of the sky. Um, it has, has a very large view of the sky with, with many detectors. Um, and so it's gonna do a different kind of science as you know what Hubble and James Webb necessarily are doing. Oh. And there's also an additional instrument. This is the chronograph instrument. That's a technology demonstration. If we want to be able to eventually, you know, do something like imaging an Earth around uh, a star like our sun, you know, we have to really have exquisite, you know, optics and control of the light coming into the telescope. And so this is a step in that direction. Cool. So is that the area that you're working on? The, the, this chronograph right. thing? Inter okay. Tell us about it. Give, give us this, as technical an explanation as you dare from those of us who are untechnical uh, about your field. <laughs> sure. So uh, the, the way a coronagraph works is that um, you are actually trying to block the light of the star so that you can reveal light that's very close to the star, but much, much fainter. And, you know, if you're outside on a sunny day and you're playing baseball and, you know, you're staring at the sun and you might get hit with that baseball. And what do you do? You usually you block out some of the light to reveal the thing that you're actually looking for. Uh. And uh, we, we've we've done this very successfully with, with Hubble. We've done we'll, we'll, we'll do this with James Webb. We've done it on the ground. Um, but, you know, our, uh, you know, any imperfections in the optical system make it uh, make it harder to do that. So uh, if you have a perfect chronograph and then you have you know any extra bouncing light in your in your system or you know coming into the telescope uh it'll throw little bits of light around that might mask out the signal of like a planet um oh. so the the really cool thing about roman's chronograph is that it has on board two deformable mirrors oh. so this is never done in space so inside the instrument there are mirrors that are able to change their shape and light will come in and you can actually correct for the optical aberrations that are coming through the telescope um, wow. and until you can reveal the area around the star and, and see a potential planet's light. The mirror is actually changing shape in real time? So the, the Roman primary mirror, the telescope's mirror, is not changing, but inside the instrument, the chronograph instrument, there are two mirrors that are changing, wow. um, changing slowly, but it's similar how on the ground we have adaptive optics systems that sense the atmospheric yeah. aberrations. 
and try to correct for uh, for those in real time. That process is a little bit slower on a space telescope. That's that's why we want to send things up into space. We don't have to look through the atmosphere, but you still can gain a lot by additional correction of of that wavefront to make it as pristine as possible. Wow! So so even a tiny tiny bit of light, like a millionth of the the amount of light that would ordinarily come from a star, would drown out a planet. It depends on how bright that planet is, right? So if you're looking for a planet that's a million times fainter than, or or a hundred million times fainter than the star, then yeah, you have to get all of that starlight out removed out of the way, yeah, wow. or as much as you can, yeah. Dang. And we and we if we understand really well how optics works, we can take advantage of clever masks like the coronagraph plus the deformable mirrors to actually carve out a dark region around the star to reveal a planet. And that's what Roman is doing. Fantastic. I love that. Now, you said it has been, a, it is being attempted on James Webb. Did, did you, what is it that you worked on on the James Webb and what does it do? It, it sounds even <laughs> okay, cooler so, than the coronagraph. Okay, let me put it that way. So there's this funny little mask on, uh, on the near-infrared imager and slitless spectrograph called NEARIS for short. Um, okay. It's called the Aperture Masking Interferometry Mode. And okay. it looks kind of like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a mask with a bunch of hexagonal holes, seven holes. Uh, okay. And what it does, much in, again, going back to the original uh, topic, uh, in the same way the Event Horizon telescope is pulling together different signals of light, each okay. hole is, the light coming through each hole is interfering and creating like a different pattern on the detector. Okay. not like your typical point source. And by changing the shape of the light that's coming in, you yeah. become more sensitive to faint things around you know, a bright star, for example. So you can look for planets or brown dwarfs that are orbiting a star um, and learn more about these kinds of objects. Wow. You know, Alex, this sounds not just sort of astronomically cool, like what I do with stars and planets and galaxies and stuff, but this is like seriously high tech. This is engineering. This is, you know, really fancy optical stuff at its highest level. This is, this is beyond me. This is remarkable. The, the nice thing about it is that it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite simple hardware in the, in terms of the mask, it's just a piece of metal, uh, <laughs> but it, it really gives you, can give you an advantage and, in some of the interesting science you can do. And it sounds simple to you. It sounds complicated to me, but that's fun. It, <laughs> you're, you are uh, engineeringly trained as well as astronomically trained, right? You, you, have, you must have this sort of skill with machines and, and technology that I don't have for sure. I did study engineering, um, but it definitely it was science that, that captured my heart. And, uh, and so I've always been a little bit more drawn to the, the technical challenges of um, how do we actually do the science? And and I'd love to be a part, you know, my small part of, of that community in, in bringing amazing new discoveries to the world. Fantastic. I love that. Yes. So all you engineers out there who are listening, come do astronomy. We're cool. Or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm showing my bias. Everyone, engineering is cool too. It really is, honest. Yeah, well, you can do engineering for astronomy. You can do astronomy involved with the engineering. It's all... It's all connected. 
I'm sure that's true. Uh, your coworkers at Caltech at IPAC must range a wide variety of of skills and abilities, right? Not just astronomy in particular, like what you have in terms of yeah, your skills. That's a good point. We have we have a, a, many astronomers, but also software developers, um, you know, system engineering people. Um, so a lot of missions that are worked on at IPAC. Um, involve, you know, a scientist, somebody who's trained in astronomy research usually, and, and a software developer or more combinations of, of those kinds of things. Um, so it's actually quite nice because, you know, it, it's nice to combine people with different skill sets to produce something even better. Well said, well said. I love that concept. So how much how much longer do we have to wait before we get to see all this cool Nancy Grace Roman telescope stuff? So I believe the current uh, launch is... Uh, 2027. Okay. Launch date. Okay. Um, so we can keep an eye out for that. <laughs> all right. So we'll have to get you back over and over again over the next five years and keep us posted on how it's all working, right? Okay. So, uh, Alan, can you feed us another question that Alex can answer? Yeah. So here's another question. It's from Jayla from North Andover. And the question is, as an astronomer, what is the most exciting part of your job? That's that's a really good question, uh, and I think there are multiple answers. But um, I'll share I'll share some of my top choices. Yes. Um, okay. So, uh, as some as an observational astronomer, I would say that at least pre-pandemic, one of the most exciting things about my job as an astronomer was traveling to telescopes in different parts of the world and being on top of a mountain and just taking all of that in. There's really nothing like that. Um, but Recently, and, and actually I, I uh, was outside of astronomy for a couple of years and have come back. Um, and recently okay. I've come to really appreciate um, how collaborative astronomy is. And I find that so refreshing and so exciting. Oh. There are so many people who love to contribute public tools and who just want to collaborate and want to, you know, figure out how you know, to combine their skills and do a better job together. And, and um, I think that's really my answer is, is how wonderfully open and collaborative astronomy is. Yay. So glad to hear from that point of view, Alex, that we're a collaborative, happy bunch, right? I mean, obviously we, we have our issues, but. <laughs> For the most but, part. <laughs> yeah. Is that what brought you back to astronomy after having left it? The desire to find that kind of environment or, or was there something else like the draw of those mountaintops that really made you want to come back? <laughs> yeah, I would say that was a big part of it. Uh, it it's, it's very, it, it's just a, it, it's a very good feeling to know that, that uh, you're not just working for your, for your day job in a sense, you, you're part of a community that's not afraid to, to share what they're doing uh, because of whatever reason, proprietary or, you know, whatever reason. Um, it, yeah. It's it's very liberating, uh, and and I and I really missed being part of of an open community like that. Oh, it's such a good feeling. Oh, sorry. Let me not break into song too much. But that's great. Wow. I I've been enjoying that environment my whole career, not even realizing what special coolness that has. Thank you, Alex. Boy, that that makes my day too. Ooh. I'm happy about that. What are you planning to do, say, for non-science stuff for the next, you know, you're, you're in Southern California, you get to relax for a little <laughs> while, like in addition to this hard work that you're going to be doing for the next five years before we launch, do you have uh, other things that you like doing? Yeah, well, I have to say that, uh, you know, having having just moved 
to California. It's a great place for outdoor activities. Um, mm -hmm. I'm getting really into hiking. Oh. Um, I, I'm a swimmer and there's so much swimming between the ocean. <laughs> yeah. There's an outdoor pool every square foot. Um, <laughs> so it's really, it's really uh, been a, a great place for getting outside and, and just getting some fresh air. That's great. Are, are you able to go from pool to pool? I mean, like, you know, hi, can I borrow your pool and just swim over? Thanks and go to the next one. Hey, <laughs> that would not be fun. quite, but uh, lucky for me, uh, the building I work in is, you know, right around the corner from the, the Caltech pool. So I'm, I'm pretty wow. lucky for that. Fantastic. Oh, that's great. Um, read any good books lately? Uh, I have to say like, this is a great time for science fiction. I've been getting really into reading, especially during all the all the time, extra time spent at home over the last two years. Yeah. And there's so much good science fiction um, that's been published recently. Um, and, but in particular, uh, I, I recently read uh, Parable of the Sower last oh, year. Octavia so Butler. Yeah, yeah. This was right around the time I was thinking about changing jobs. Um, <laughs> and I think it was a big, uh, you know, motivator for me. Uh, it, it was a, it was an excellent book and I, I definitely recommend that wow. one. Uh, Alan, you've read that too? Uh, I've read that. Okay. I read that actually probably last year also. Oh, well, so it seems like a good pen. So it, it is science yeah. fiction. I, I've heard of it and I know about it, but I haven't read it. It's science fiction. And Octavia Butler, was she a scientist as well or, or a climate scientist or something? Or just a Octavia very- Octavia Butler was a science fiction writer. Um, and, and some people call the work also like speculative fiction. I think that's also a good yeah. categorization. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and, and it like outlined society in such a way that made you want to come back to astronomy during a pandemic. Yeah. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. The, the, there's something about the, you know, uh, amid a, a world, you know, a society that's kind of collapsing and everything oh. is falling apart, oh. uh, having the protagonist, a young woman uh, still believing that we belong in space, that we belong among the stars, um, oh, was just very, very important for me to hear at that time when it felt like, what, you know, what's the point of what I, anything that I'm doing right now? What's, what's the point of uh, any of the work that I'm doing? And it was okay to still have that dream and to still, you know, have a love for, for astronomy. Definitely. And that was important for me. Wow. That is so cool. Alan, you would agree this, this is like the theme yeah, of this I'm, book? I, yeah. So it's, it's cool. It's, it's sort of a, a different kind of hero than a lot of science fiction stories have. So a lot of science fiction stories, you either have the, you know, action hero equivalent, you know, like Luke Skywalker, or you have the, the one who's primarily a, a research scientist or someone like, you know, Mr. Spock. Um, and here the the hero is is she's not really either of those archetypes she's more of like a spiritual prophet type person but from a sciencey perspective and okay. i i really think that was very engaging writing that way wow i love that i guess it it's not cheesy at all to say that astronomy and thinking about space exploration or just studying the universe can indeed be this uplifting thing um, yeah, uh, it, it is. I, I know enough about the book that it's describing a dystopic future. And yet it is astronomy or the love of space or humans in space that is inspiring, perhaps the salvation of our species or something. Wow, that is so cool. 
Well, um, until we get you back, Alex, is there some way we can keep track of what you're doing, uh, how you're doing it? You're, are you on social media? Do you do that sort of thing? Uh, I'm not much on social media, but um, you can, of course, keep an eye on Roman Space Telescope. I know we have a little bit of time before before it launches, but lots yeah. of exciting developments. Um, IPAC has a website, um, and there's also NASA websites for Roman Space Telescope, and that's what I'll be spending most of my time on, roman.ipac.caltech.edu. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, okay, we are we have already agreed we're going to have you back again. Thank you, Alex, Dr. Alexander Greenbaum. Alex, thank you so much for being with us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Alan Liu, our wonderful co-host, thank you for everything. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here as always. And thank you to you, all of you out there, for being part of our show today. If you like what you hear and see, please support us on Patreon. And as always, thank you for being a part of the Ludiverse. <laughs>